The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, D-Day, Part 2. D-Day required unprecedented cooperation between international armed forces. The Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force was an international coalition, and although the Allies were united against Germany, the military leadership responsible for Overlord had to overcome political, cultural and personal tensions. By 1944, there were over two million troops from over 12 countries in Britain in preparation for the invasion. The Allied force consisted primarily of American, British and Canadian troops, but also included Australian, Belgian, Czech, Dutch, French, Greek, New Zealand, Norwegian, Rhodesian and Polish naval, air or ground support. The Royal Air Force Museum is a treasure trove of memoirs and letters from those who took part. These are a few of the personal recollections of D-Day. Leading aircraftsman Harry Clift was an armourer with the Typhoon Squadron on D-Day. Towards the end of May, he said, we were told that meals would be available to us at any time of day or night. If we were working into the night and after the work was completed we were hungry, then a meal would be available in the dining tent. Items of food were provided that we had not seen since before the war. The standard of meals was greatly improved, and butter, cheese, and bread were placed on the dining tables. This was to build us up in readiness for the months that we would have to exist on compo rations. On the 5th of June, the squadron was very busy attacking radar stations and strong points in the invasion area. At night, in the dark, we were issued with buckets of black and white paint and brushes. By the light of headband torches, we painted black and white identification bands on the underside of all aircraft so that they would be recognised as friendly when operating over the beachhead the following morning. Pilot Officer Glover actually flew over the beaches on D-Day. In his story, he tells us, in preparation for D-Day landings, we were specially trained for several months to form part of a small combined RAF fleet air arm wing responsible for the direction of the naval bombardment on Normandy. The scene from 10,000 feet over the beachhead at first light on the 6th of June 1944, when the Allied fleet opened up as one, is something I shall not easily forget. We stayed with the naval guns until the battle moved further inland and beyond their 20-mile range and absorbed an object lesson in the accuracy and effectiveness of this mighty weapon of war put under our control. An American pilot, Lieutenant Nillens, was flying one of the window-laying Lancasters that featured in the last plane tale. Eight crews would fly for four hours, he said. Eight more would then take their place for another four hours. The pilots had to do precision flying. 
Each plane would fly 35 seconds on course, make a controlled turn, and fly a reverse course for 32 seconds, then a slow turn back onto the first course while throwing out some more window. I would be starting the original course slightly ahead of where the previous lot dropped into the water, thus there would be no interruption of blips on the German radar. I had to fly at 200 miles an hour in a series of circles that carried me forwards at only 8 miles an hour. Lieutenant Nillens continued, There were 12 aircrew on board my Arthur Roger Lancaster. Pilot officer Castanola's crew were coming along to share the flying and windowing duties. Harry, my navigator, guided us into position. I began my hours of very intense flying duty. On course, turning, levelling out, on course, turning, minute after minute. All the time Harry's voice was droning in my earphones. Tighten the turn, you're two seconds slow. On course, on course, begin turn now. Ease up, you're three seconds too fast. This went on for an hour or so. I had to keep within four seconds elapsed time at all times. It was a relief to have Kaz Castanola slip into my seat. His navigator took over from Harry. Three others of his crew relieved those of mine who had been dropping window bundles at four-second intervals for an hour. The second wave took over from us. We had had to return to base at an altitude below 1,000 feet. The coordination of the thousands of aircraft that were airborne over the invasion needed a complicated system of control. Betty Morell was in an operations room doing just that. She said, Towards the end of May, all leave was cancelled, and everyone was confined to camp. Absolutely no one was allowed out of the gates except for the ration lorries and an emergency hospital case, and they had to be escorted by security police. All mail was censored, and no one could make outside phone calls. The reasons for all this were kept firmly under wraps, but it wasn't difficult to guess what was going to happen. Airborne troops were camped on the far side of the airfield, and gliders were stacked in rows. Clearly something extraordinary was being planned. There was to be a big exercise on the night of June the 4th, but due to bad weather it was postponed for 24 hours. Well, we'd had big exercises and postponements before, but this time it all seemed very different. The whole station was holding its breath. On June the 5th, I was coming on the afternoon shift, 2 till 10pm. The whole place was buzzing with activity. Phone messages, signals, and a lot of coming and going from the squadrons and army units. At last the orders came through from command and we were told what was going on. Our squadron and others in 38 and 46 groups were going to drop gliders and paratroops into Germany-occupied France. Normandy. This was it. The start of the long-awaited invasion of Europe. Tonight's exercise was actually the beginning of Operation Overlord. 
a massive seaborne fleet was already heading towards the French beaches. June the 6th, 1944, was to be D-Day. Not a soul went off duty that night. The night shift arrived, but we were told to stay on duty. Not that I wanted to go. There was far too much going on. Our planes took off shortly after 2300 hours. The ops room began to fill up. First group captain Abrams, the station's CO, and then a lot of other officers from the squadron offices. In fact, anyone who was allowed to be there and not flying came in and out during that night. The air began to fill with cigarette smoke. It was going to be a long night, and the normal rations of food and drink soon ran out with all those extra bodies wanting sustenance. Around midnight, the CO left and reappeared a short time later, bearing a large tray laden with new supplies. He said he'd burgled the officer's mess pantry and would have to own up in the morning. After a long wait, the signals began to come to say that the drop had been successful and the planes were returning to base. We ate a little and drank lots of tea and coffee, smoked lots of cigarettes and waited for the planes to return. They all came back safely that night. There was a long session of debriefing. When the morning shift arrived, we were allowed to join the crews for a huge aircrew breakfast. Everybody hung about until the BBC told the world of the Allied landings. Then we finally collapsed into bed, excited and exhausted. Flying in that invasion force was a glider tug pilot, Warren Officer Donald Wood. Operation Tonga, he said, got underway as Wing Commander Booth took off at 22.49 hours on June the 5th towing a glider. The remaining six of us took off at roughly half-minute intervals. Staff Sergeant Saunders said that he had a jeep with a trailer full of ammunition, a six-pound gun and six men. The cloud base was low and we flew at a thousand feet. We saw no one else at all, all the way there and back. As the visibility was so poor, we descended about 15 minutes from our ETA to 800 feet. And then, at the very moment the nav cried time, we could just discern the vague outline of the coast. Staff Sergeant Saunders called out, Going now, and immediately pulled off. We turned away and landed back at base at 0240 hours, after a flight of three hours and fifty minutes. All the other six returned, and all reported no enemy aircraft at all, and only very light flak. Not one aircraft received any damage. We learned a day or two later that the bridge had been captured with great success. Later in the day, Wood flew resupply missions. Of those, he commented, On the morning of the 6th, we briefed for Operation Mallard. This was to be part of the very big airborne landing throughout the afternoon onto what we named DZ November. Fifteen of us were to tow fifteen horses loaded with personnel from the Royal Ulster Rifles. We were to drop late evening, and as we arrived overhead, we saw the landing ground absolutely crowded 
with both Horser and Hamilcar gliders strewn everywhere. We took off at 18.44 and landed back at 22.34 after a flight of 3 hours 50 minutes again. Again, not a single German aircraft seen. All the way there and back, we had a continuous cover of fighter aircraft overhead. There was again very little light flak, and that only on the very coastline itself. Again, no damage of any nature to the aircraft. Operation Overlord did not bring an end to the war in Europe, but it did begin the process through which victory was eventually achieved. By the end of August 1944, the German army was in full retreat from France, but by September, Allied momentum had slowed. The Germans were able to regroup and launched a failed but determined counteroffensive in the Ardennes in December 1944. This defeat sapped German manpower and resources and allowed the Allies to resume their advance towards Germany. In March 1945, British and American troops crossed the Rhine, eventually linking up with Soviet forces in Germany. The surrender finally came on the 7th of May, 1945.